Welcome to another episode of the Business Exchange, How Business Works, brought to you by the American Business Council. Uh, now, the Business Exchange is a bi-weekly program where business executives and top industry experts across um, the world share insights on how business works. And also they share deep dive into the biggest stories in business and policy. Um, uh, for the most part, I guess, make bold predictions across, you know, the various sectors of the economy or uh, specific policy issues that we are um, discussing. So today our focus will be on the U.S.-African relations and our guest will share her thoughts on the perception of U.S. investors in Africa and the the current um, President Biden, uh, Harris administration's plant for Africa's um, growth and development. Um, well, I would say uh, before we really, really get into the uh, details of the conversation, that the previous administration uh, launched the Prosper Africa and finalized the creation of the um, Development Finance Cooperation, the DFC. Now, these initiatives embody um, the, the past president's view of doing business with individual firms and countries instead of um, having a more multilateral orientation. Well, whether it's good or bad, that's another story for another day. Uh, but another tool at the DFC's disposal is obviously a higher credit line of $60 billion, which means it can lend more to viable projects across the continent. And currently, according to DFC's um, website, um, DFC has invested at least about $8 billion for 300 projects across Africa. Now, um, just very recently, President Biden uh, made a remark at the 2021 African Union Summit and highlighted a shared vision for a better future, which includes uh, growing trade and investment that advances the prosperity of the United States. This is really to use his words and African nations and also emphasized that the U.S. was ready to be a partner in solidarity, support and mutual respect. Really, really great ideals. Uh, before we go on, I would re kindly request that you follow us on at ABC Council underscore on Twitter and the hashtag to use is hashtag how business works. Now, today I have um, joining me Amaka Anko. She is the head of Eurasia's group Africa's um, practice and she helps clients understand the interactions of po politics, policy and markets across sub-Saharan Africa. Amaka has a very wide experience working across the African continent with organizations such as Africare, the ADB, the International Crisis Group, and the International Rescue Committee. Um, she is a regular commentator and speaker on Africa, on Nigeria and African issues. And I would always say, like what I say to her, that she has a very um, intimidating um, academic background. Abaka holds a bachelor's degree from the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University and a Doctor of Law degree from Harvard Law School. Now, another degree in quote that I would also like you to know is that Amaka grew up in Nigeria, in Enugu, Nigeria, and she's very fluent in Igbo and French. Amaka, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Yes, I was just I was even just being very conservative in my because uh, <laughs> yeah, well, really great to have you on the show, Amaka. 
So uh, there, there have been several um, concerns, you know, about um, Chinese learning to African nations with a, with some case examples, uh, Zambia, and even more recently, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, you know, really trying to renegotiate some agreed terms made by the previous governments they had in their countries. Yet African leaders still, you know, go after the um, these Chinese loans. Um, from your experience with working with African governments, what do you think makes this make this um, loans attractive compared to loans from the, the the West? Okay, so a couple things. Um, one is that you know Western most Western governments don't lend extensively to governments, right? And if if you look at the a lot of um, you know, right now, if you look at the debt profile of, you know, African countries, bilateral debt is dominated by China, right? And so the point being that a lot of Western governments see intervention or usually channel the interventions in their minds through international institutions, international financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank, which, as we know, often come with certain conditionalities, so we can call it strings attached, right? So, so that's, it's, it's one, one of it is just style, right? Um, the Western governments kind of have moved away from kind of direct governments, government lending, um, a lot of development assistance is often ch- channeled through NGOs and non-government entities and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one. Two is, you know, China's loans are often concessional, right? So if you think about most of the financing from the West comes in the form of eurobonds, international capital markets, um, market rates, and you know loans from Chinese entities are often concessional. Maybe not as concessional as IMF World Bank, but certainly well under the market rates for you know capital market bonds that are usually, you know, flowing from, you know, Western private sector. So those those would, would be the two things. One is there aren't that many alternatives in terms of bilateral funding. It's China is the main and sometimes only player. And two is it's more attractive in terms of pricing for these countries. Yeah, okay, so that, that's fine. But, I mean, what we have also learned, but that, then that could be a conversation for another day. Um, mm-hmm. Which one is obviously at the end of the more sustainable? I mean, as in where they exist, because I mean, it's another thing if they don't exist, but where they exist, um, uh, you know, um, why would these countries not explore, um, you know, the opportunities? Like you said, you know, they come in maybe euro bonds or some kind of bond or the other, but at the end of the day, we may begin to ask ourselves which one works well, you know, which one is actually more uh, sustainable and of uh, best fit if if the countries want to look at that from uh, another perspective. I mean, we're not here to prescribe. It's it's just... Um, it's just yeah, a I, yeah. <laughs> I want to... Let's, let's address that, right? So this idea, I, I mean, I, I think... Let, let's just... Let's just take it on directly. This idea that there's a Chinese debt trap is is frankly political. It's a f- political narrative that is not accurate. If you look at the debt profile across Africa, and I'm trying to pull up the data I have it somewhere right now, 
it's dominated. The, the biggest chunk of the debt is multilateral funding. That's mm. Western institutions, absolutely. And I can pull the oh. numbers for you while we're talking. The, the, very interesting chunk, <laughs> the biggest chunk is multilateral funding, um, followed by Eurobond. Okay. China is a distant, distant third. If you look across West Africa, for example, the, the percentage of external debt that is Chinese does not exceed 10% across West Africa. There are a few places, Zambia being one of them, Angola being one of them, where Chinese debt is about 50% or more of the country's external debt burden. The other 50% will be Eurobonds, by the way, okay? Um, but there are two countries like that. Kenya might have China's, um, uh, a Chinese exposure to its, in its external debt portfolio of maybe 30, 20, 30%, right? That's basically, in South Africa, it's under 1%. Right, like across the continent, it's really still mostly multilaterals and eurobonds that dominate by far. Interesting, very, very interesting. You know, uh, another thing is, uh, you know, when you hear the stories, and um, there was there was this uh, um, some social media thing going around at some point where. Uh, they showed that in Zambia people were already speaking Chinese and the, technically the whole country uh, was like, you know, changing culture, phrase, everything. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, and so when people talk about the death trap in, 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 in the continent, the mindset is, it's like, um, it, it's like, like a takeover. You know, and usually it's some kind of um, very aggressive takeover. So I guess that is, either it's a picture that's been painted or it is the fact that maybe the things that we tie um this um this debts to or these transactions to um make make um, countries or people in the continent a bit wary about it but again like i said um yeah. something we can go on and on about yeah and it's usually not people in the continent that are driving these narratives that's a fact Right. This was mostly something that was started in the U.S. as a kind of offshoot of the U.S.-China tensions. And the U.S. is getting nervous about Chinese assertion of global power. And, you know, it makes the U.S. nervous. It makes certain U.S. policymakers nervous that they might be losing clout and China is gaining clout. And so these narratives... People put out these narratives, not fact-checked. The Western media carries it. People start to carry it. It becomes a thing. But, you know, inside African governments, people who know, you know, if you go to the DMO, people know what the facts are, right? Um, but these narratives are being, are not really being, are not originated. If you go to West Africa, for example, on the streets of West Africa, who are people angry at? It's not China. It's France, right? For all sorts of very valid reasons in terms of, you know, corruption and debt and even, you know, talk about debt traps and all that stuff, right? There's so much of, like, French business interests in West Africa that were uh, acquired through, you know, sketchy means that involved government um, influence, 
right? So, you know, the, when you go to the streets across, our, you know, there, there are a few places like Zambia where China is overextended and there is some, and maybe Kenya, that there's, you know, still at, at, at an early stage where China is a part of the domestic political discussion in a, in a negative way. But that's really, in my view, that's few and far between, frankly. But yeah. So we can. I'm happy to move on. <laughs> but yeah, I, I yeah. I mean, we, can, we can go. We can go on and on because I, I, yeah, about yeah. it. But again, we can discuss this offline because there is a country pretty close to us. I have a couple of friends who, you know, keep sharing a lot of concerns about the fact that you see, you know, um, not just the Chinese government. It's not the Chinese government now, but more like you know Chinese, you know, companies and the yeah. kind of incursion and the fact that again. Um, we look at issues around um, governance and you know things that just seem to be happening um, that may not be happening. But like I said, let's let's yeah. let's move on. Um, can discuss this offline. Um, so something else that we we are looking at is 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 um, security. Uh, so right. um, our that's it, American Business Council conducted or we do that in often, but the 2020 Economic Impact Survey of U.S. businesses in Nigeria, and you can visit our um, insight page um, on our website to download this. Uh, we, we we noted that, you know, most of the companies said that uh, security is one of the um, top four critical concerns for U.S. businesses in Nigeria. And when you look at Mozambique, for instance, um, which a lot of um, that I had really gotten a lot of um, interest from the, uh, from a, an investor's perspective in gas um, and 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 the fact that the, they have a lot of gas reserves. Um, this is a country that also has also been disru- disrupted by uh, insurgent groups, and also very um, recently. The, the president of Nigeria, Mohamed Buhari, asked for the U.S. government support in combating the insecurity um, in the country. So, so what's your perception of um, investors trying to to um, come into Africa, uh, invest in the in the continent, and how do you advise them to do um, this during these turbulent uh, um, times? So, are you are you talking about insecurity? broadly in Africa, so in the Sahel, or specifically in Nigeria? I mean, look. So so at the end of the day, you know, Amaka, you know, obviously there are different colorations of security concerns. But overall, um, if you look at, for instance, the Sahel, we have, you know, art, you have peculiar issues. Um, in the north of Africa, there are the. I mean, let's even focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Um, in 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 East Africa, we have uh, you know the um, Islamic uh, insurgents. You know, especially around the boundaries of Somalia um, and Ethiopia, we are having you know um, those um, challenges and internal issues. In Mozambique, we are having you know different groups and uh, warlords doing their thing in Congo. So we have colorations of this, you know, um, security concerns. And, you know, when U.S. companies come in to, to, to invest, um, you know, one of the things that fly up, especially from uh, the feedback we got from the survey, uh, one of the critical concerns are, you know, the security issues. So it's more like, how do you, but then, you know, they still need to do business. So we're, we're asking, you know, do you have some advice to share? Uh, you know, around this around this period. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that um, 
you know, multinational and Western companies have shown time and time again that they know how to handle security issues when it's um, when it's sort of in the interest of the bottom line to do so, right? Like there are Western, all sorts of companies in Burkina Faso right now who are who own mines and who are doing mines and a lot of them hire security, you know, private security around their mines. So, so the, the point being, so that's a different, I'm just saying, you know, broadly, broadly speaking, you know, businesses will go where it makes sense to their bottom line to do it, despite what whatever the dangers are. But that said, I do think that the, um, you know, let's not let the, so some of these security challenges sort of cloud the bigger picture, right? In the sense that um, if you look at the major markets across the continent, um, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, and even Ethiopia, the main business units or the main business cities in these places, in Nigeria, it's Lagos, right? Um, often are not the site or the focus of a lot of insecurity, right? Um, that's not necessarily good for the country, right? Like, of course, Boko Haram and insecurity in the North impacts overall economic trajectory of Nigeria because you don't have as much agricultural productivity as you would without Boko Haram, which means you don't have as much growth, which means you don't have as many consumers. If you're a business, you know, you have a smaller market. So yeah, there is an impact. But the point is, you can still do business. You can still do business in Lagos and you can be fairly isolated. So it really just depends on, you know, who you are, what kind of business you're doing for the people who are going into Burkina Faso, um, they go in knowing exactly what the risks are. So the the best advice would be go in knowing exactly what the risks are in the specific areas that you um, need to need to work in, and then have a plan to address them. You know, whether it's private security, whether it's engaging with local tra- traditional authorities. A lot of people do that. Um, you know, having that sort of agreements, working out things, and you know, that's you just have to kind of work around it, right? Um, but while being aware, my only advice is be aware, let's don't paint too much of a broad brush about what it means across the board, right? Um, take everything, context matters, um, yeah, and do your homework. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's really, that's really um, a good one because, um, I always say, um, and that's another joke. Like maybe when I'm in um, in in the US, or maybe one of my friends from the US or from other parts of the West would say, "Oh, I'm going to Africa." And the question I usually ask is, "Which country in Africa?" So um, to your point, this you know a generic um, painting, you know, may not uh, be um, a good one to to do. But the point is, the reality is that we're we're seeing, you know, typically. Even countries that you never used to find some of these things happening, you're seeing some tensions rising. Obviously, some of this coming with issues around unemployment at all, at all, at all. But again, that could be that could be actually a topic for another podcast. <laughs> so yeah, so so so. But again, there is this beautiful um, project we have in Africa, which is the AFCFTA, which. Obviously, we have you know, we have worked um, together on um, you know um, 
and we're yeah. still hoping that we'll uh, collaborate in this area. Um, how do you suggest that the, the Biden-Harris administration um, ensure that the um, Prosper Africa initiative, which, uh, like I said, it's, some people think that you really this is one very great project, you know, for the continent. How do we think that, how do we uh, ensure that it, um, at least uh, to advise how it would align with the goals of AFCFT for the economic growth of uh, the continent? So I listened to a very good question, um, and I'm, I'm going to borrow some of the advice that I just heard from a similar webinar from Rosa Whitaker. So Rosa Whitaker is a former assistant U.S. Um, trade representative for Africa, who now runs a, a consulting firm, and she she recently did. A webinar with I think it was women in international trade. Um, fascinating. People should look it up and listen to it. Um, but some of the advice I, I, and and she gives you know really 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 important advice. Okay, so I'll one of it is I would say find a way to supporting the AFCFTA is very important. Aligning with it, I think they need to think about exactly what the goal of this FTA with Kenya is, right? Um, what it means for the AFCFTA, what the intentions are behind it and how it is perceived and how it will be perceived in Africa. Um, and then, you know, um, being proactive about actually finding ways to finance African inf infrastructure. A lot of US policy towards Africa, as we all know, has been often dominated, dominated. And I think, again, that it goes to your question about insecurity, disproportionately dominated by concerns about security and human rights in a way that those same concerns do not dominate conversations in other regions of the world that have as much problems with human rights and corruption and insecurity. China being one of them, you know, 20, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, um, you know, other parts of Asia, right? Like you don't see these concerns dominating the conversation to the same extent, right? And so it's time, the most important advice, I think, for the Biden administration is to really think long and hard about like what it actually means when they say that they want to be a partner to African countries, right? What does it look like? Some of the advice that Rosa gave was um, find ways to actually finance African in infrastructure using the bond markets, right? And, you know, that could be, um, you could incorporate, say, for example, a Buy America trade requirement, um, but you could provide incentives for certain infrastructure bonds that could be used that, that are priced maybe, you know, at lower interest rates um, for African countries to finance infrastructure. And it still helps American companies by including the Buy America components where those bonds need to buy inputs from American companies in order to, to do the infrastructure. That's a way to actually compete with China because obviously China is providing infrastructure funding and usually what they get in return is you're gonna buy Chinese machinery and use Chinese labor and so on and so forth. Um, 
that's one. Um, and then, you know, other ideas like allowing, she had another idea like allowing tax-free, a tax-free repatriation of profits for U.S. firms that are investing in transformative sectors in Africa. Um, but I think most importantly, and I really, I absolutely agree with this, is also rethinking the quote-unquote the development assistance model, which focuses so much on U.S. aid, which, like I said, doesn't work directly with governments, but often spend a lot of money on development consultants that basically is a whole industry in Washington, D.C. So the USAID could say they spend, you know, I don't know, $200 million or whatever in Africa. It's hard to find. There's not a lot of transparency about where that money is going because a lot of that money is just going to pay American consultants to write reports about development issues and do feasibility studies and you know one and so on and so forth. That money isn't going to anything you know tangible that we can see in the African country, right? Um, and so it's hard. I mean, again, these are all issues that were raised by a former American official, and actually a lot of people. I was surprised to find a lot of people agree with the lack of transparency from the development in industry. So that's something that. I would say, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we look more closely at, right? And so that some of that money instead can go into direct productive sectors like finance and infrastructure um, that will actually help drive growth rather than creating, uh, you know, a parallel sector. Usually it all goes to like create this like NGO economy right, um, which does is not necessarily helping productivity in the long term. It's giving people jobs in the short term. Um, but yeah, that's it. So, uh, you know, those are some of my thoughts, but I, I really recommend listening to um, Rosa, Rosa Whitaker on this issue as well, because I thought, you know, it's powerful when it's coming from an American official, from a former American official. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine, yeah. So I would I would I would go and uh, listen to you because I haven't but, but that's um, that's a good one to share. Well, you know when you're talking about the U.S. government seeing uh, you know African governments as a, a partner you know in this whole project, there's also the flip side, and I'm happy you mentioned this whole um, you know the NGO donor thing because there is this real donor mentality um, that also African governments bring to the table. So you cannot say that you want to be a partner when you, um, you know, when you're really um, saying, oh, we need, can you help us, you know, so uh, this adult conversation must really start also in the continent. So people to know that the donor issues are not sustainable and uh, we need to, um, we need to look at that very closely. Um, I'm, I'm getting all these bells ringing around that uh, we're, we're running out of time. Um, uh, so I would have really loved that we talk a lot more about that as well, but um, un un unfortunately we're we're kind of uh, very thin on time. Uh, just to also mention that we are um, having a webinar with the Deputy Secretary of State for African Affairs, um, you know, Akuna Cook, um, on the second of June at three p.m. and. Uh, we will discuss in depth this whole idea, the, the, the Biden-Harris administration and what they tend to do to support Africa's growth and uh, development. And I'll say sadly we have come to the end of this show, uh, this program, and you can listen to the, the show on Apple Podcasts, 
SoundCloud and Spotify. And for further details of our guests, we visit our website's podcast page on www.abcnig.com. Maka, thank you so much for making our time uh, to, to join us today. My pleasure.